Michael, this is all very confusing. So I'm going to start today's episode off with a little story that may sound a little bit far-fetched, but stay with me. So I've been in three car accidents in my life. In all three, I woke up that morning and I put on a pair of pants. While you could make the argument that there is a correlation between wearing pants and crashing my car, and therefore I should stop wearing pants, I think we can be reasonably confident that wearing pants is not what caused those car crashes. Now this may sound obvious and a bit ridiculous, but this is exactly the type of logic that is applied to lots of other and more important decisions in life. Today, we're gonna cover a few so-called key indicators that the media often hypes as triggers for different financial events. I'm Remy Bartolotta, and this is On Markets, presented by Darwin Asset Management and Darwin Wealth Management. With me today are Chief Investment Officer Michael Sorrentino and Senior Financial Advisor Michael Bartolotta. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to shout out on the show, email comments at onmarkets.com or hit me up directly at remy at onmarkets.com. And if you like our show, please hit the follow button on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. So recently we saw an inverted yield curve which is often seen as a key indicator for recessions. So Tino, let's start out by defining what an inverted yield curve actually means, and then let's talk about whether or not this should really be used as a key indicator. I always think that in most financial concepts are based on third grade math and pretty easy to grasp if you water them down. This is a tricky one, so just follow me on it. We're going to use an example here, a situational example. So Let's say there's a bank out there. We're going to call this bank Bartolotta Bank, okay? I like that so far. <laughs> they're in the business of taking in deposits, okay, from everyday people. And then they're taking those deposits and they're packaging them into loans to larger businesses. Let's say you're paying your depositors 1%. Then you package up all the, that money together and you issue loans at, let's say, 5%. So Bartolotta Bank is making 4% on the spread, right? So that's important to understand because banks are the gatekeepers to economic spending, okay? 70% of our economy is consumer spending. Another 18% is business spending. Our economy depends on us being out there and spending money. Recessions happen when we don't spend money. So banks act as gatekeepers to that spending because they're the ones that decide whether we're going to get a loan or not. And you've noticed in history, times when we go into recessions often coincide with the fact that they are periods where people aren't spending as much money. So let's go back to Bartolotta Bank here. So let's say, Mike, let's say I walk into your bank and I want to take a loan out for five days. And I also want to take another loan out for 30 years. Yep. Which of those loans is going to have a higher interest rate? I'm going to guess the 30 year because the risk of you not paying it back is much greater over 30 years than it is over five days. Exactly. And I'll add into a couple other risks. Let's say inflation. We don't know what's going to happen 30 years from now. It could look very different. So you're exactly right. Because of the length of the loan, generally speaking, longer loans have higher interest rates to compensate the lender for that added risk. So a traditional quote-unquote yield curve looks just like that. It's upward sloping meaning that short-term loans, because there's less risk, you're going to have less of a yield, a smaller interest rate. And as that loan length extends or it gets longer, you will see on a graph that will curve upwards, okay? And that curving upwards is representative of the higher interest rate, representative of taking on more risk. This is what we call a very healthy yield curve. It makes sense. And when banks are dealing with a 
normal yield curve, they can make money. Again, because they can pay their depositors 1% and they can loan it out at 5%. An inverted yield curve doesn't happen often, but it's the exact opposite, where longer-term borrowing periods have a lower interest rate than shorter term. Now, it makes no sense, all right? Why would Bartolotta Bank give me a lower interest rate for a longer loan? It doesn't make any logical sense, but there are a lot of factors in the economy that cause these yield curves to, quote-unquote, invert. The problem, the reason why this is so closely followed, and it is a legitimate indicator that we need to watch, is because if banks cannot make money, if their spread goes to zero or if it's negative or whatever it may be, if they don't have that profitability, what do you think they're going to do? Bought a lot of banks not going to give out loans, okay? Because they can't make any money off of it. And if they can't make any money off of it, the banks aren't making money, then guess what happens? Lending stops or it slows down dramatically. And if lending slows down dramatically, spending comes to a halt or it goes negative. And if that happens, oftentimes we can end up in a recession. So that's what an inverted yield curve is. So Tino, it sounds like you're actually making a case that we should be concerned about a recession when there's an inverted yield curve because there is some correlation there. Am I reading that wrong? No, you're right. I mean, look, this is an indicator that is absolutely worth watching, okay? Because if you go back, in Remy's example of pants, it's like thunder and lightning. If you go back every single recession that we've had going back since we've been recording data has happened after a yield curve inversion. But it's not as simple as saying it's a line of the sand or a trigger switch. It doesn't work like that. There's a lot of factors out there that determine the validity or how serious a yield curve inversion is, okay? Because I'm going to flip it around. Remy puts pants on every day, assumingly. (laughs) And if he does, that doesn't mean he's going to get in a car wreck every day. And that's the same thing with an inverted yield curve. Every time the yield curve inverts doesn't necessarily mean it implies a recession down the road. You always got to dig deeper. How often does the yield curve invert that does not result in a recession? Is it 50% of the time or 10% of the time or 90%? Do we have any idea? It doesn't happen very often, so the numbers are low. So it's hard to gain any statistical significance around it. But I'll give you an example. So let's go back to August, September of 2019. Okay, The yield curve inverted back then for a brief time period and was very shallow. Eight months later, six months later, whatever it was, what happened? We were in a recession. Remember? March, April 2020. Yeah. So some might argue, hey, look, this happened. This is yet another example. But I got to think even like the craziest COVID conspiracy theorists out there, you can't possibly tie COVID to a yield curve inversion, right? There's just no way. Well, not only that, but it was eight months later. I mean, how closely do these two things have to occur for people to say one has caused the other? I mean, eight months seems like a long period of time to me. And sometimes it's a lot longer. Again, it goes back to what I call the three Ds, depth, duration, and drivers. We got to ask ourselves first, how deep is the inversion, right? So Bartolotta Bank, if your yield curve inverts for five days or five minutes, like it inverted a couple of weeks ago, it wasn't inverted all that long. I don't see how that's going to really materially damage your business, okay? The second thing is the duration. If it's down, if it's inverted for a little bit of time, so be it. But if it's inverted for eight months, 10 months, a year, a year and a half, or even maybe a couple months, that's going to have more of a negative impact on the economy. But then you got to ask yourself, why is it inverting? If you go back to August of 2019, or I think it was September 2019, it did invert because the Fed was worried about inflation and they were worried about 
the economy overheating and they were raising interest rates, they were cutting rates back then. What was happening back then was you had demand for our debt across the globe because there were negative interest rates in other parts of the world. So investors were clamoring for U.S. debt at the time, and that was impacting our yield curve. So the drivers of that yield curve inversion had nothing to do with expectations of weakness in the U.S. economy going forward. It was completely exogenous. So there's so many factors that go into this that, again, like I said, it's not a trigger switch. You can't just say, oh, the yield curve inverted, let's go to cash, because that is a major overreaction. You know, it's, you know, every now and then you create these little charts, you know, if every time the stock market dipped X, you went to cash, what would happen? It'd be interesting to see if every time there was a yield curve inversion, you went to cash for some fixed period of time, what that would do to the return on your investments. That's actually a great idea because I'll say, we talk a lot of times here about you know, there's not much difference between being wrong and being early. And if you go back and look at some of these yield curve inversions, particularly the big ones that ultimately did end in a recession, okay? these yield curve inversions sometimes happen well over a year before any kind of negative event in the economy. So a lot of times you're watching the market go up sometimes 10, 20, 30, 40% until you end up being right. So even after the recession, to your point, Mike, you're probably ahead. I'd have to do the analysis, but my gut tells me that if you just kind of work through it a little bit better than just making it feel like a trigger switch, you're probably in a much better spot. Well, the other thing you're talking about, it's sort of what I just said earlier, right? You said if a year from now. So technically, if you lengthen that period of time between the yield curve inversion and a recession, I mean, you can say that every recession was preceded by a yield curve inversion at some point. That's just how long before it, did it happen. That's exactly right. This is an indicator that you got to take seriously. But it's a signal to do nothing more than to do more research. Dig deeper, understand really why that's happening. I mean, look, Mike, you just said it yourself. I mean, a lot of times things will happen, but it could be years before it, any kind of negative response in the market or the economy occur. Look at rising interest rates. I mean, we're going through it right now. You go back over 40 years, the market or the S&P 500, three months after the first rate hike in a rate hike cycle, 50% of the time the market's down. But guess what? 100% of the time, a year later, it's up by an average of, I think it's like 11, 11.5%, somewhere in that range. So if you're going to sell stocks right now simply because you're worried about a yield curve inversion or rising interest rates without doing any more work, to your point, Mike, you could end up watching the market go up for years, years before you're proven right. And at that point, even if the market were to drop 20, 30%, the question, again, going back to the math, are you still ahead? It's questionable. So as we've talked about a lot on this show, we know that the media likes to jump on whatever headline they can find to sell newspapers or whatever the equivalent of that is these days. Tino, do you have any other examples of quote-unquote key indicators that the media tends to hype up? Oh, there's so many. A couple that come to mind. First is the ISM data that comes out on manufacturing data in our country. This is, is kind of geeky, but this is another line in the sand thing that I've never really understood. Basically, it's a measure or a gauge of manufacturing activity in our country. So anytime this number comes above 50, there's expansion in our country. And if it's below 50, it's contraction. For reasons that I've never understood, and this is going back decades, anytime this number is below 50, alarm bells go off, people start freaking out. It's not as loud and as scary as the yield curve, but there's still that dramatic effect of saying, oh God, everything's going to hell now which is funny in a weird way, considering about 11% of the U.S. economy is manufacturing. 
it's important, don't get me wrong, but our economy is a services-based economy. It's predominantly services-based. So to sit there and say that a manufacturing index of what people are buying, I honestly don't really look at it all that much. I mean, yeah, it's important to see, and I'm curious to see where the numbers come in, but this is an example where it does make sense to dig a little deeper, but more importantly, you got to combine this with other variables. On its own, it provides almost no value. So I'm curious, when you say combine this with other values, does this mean to combine it with other popular key indicators, or are you just referring to just research in general? Other indicators. I wrote last week about an economic model that I've used for years, and I try to keep things very simplistic when I look at the economy. And I look at, call it six key factors. So you can't look at six or 60 or whatever it might be you got to be able to take all these and aggregate them together to get a good picture of what's going on. I think this is a key point here. You said it yourself, correlation versus causation. One data point on its own is just never going to get you what you need to know. Even the yield curve inversion, rising interest rates. you got to bring all these variables together to ask yourself, okay, what's going on? So when I think about, let's say, for example, spending in this economy, because it is everything, I ask myself, what's the ability for people to spend money right now? And what's their willingness to spend money right now? And those are two very different questions that look at different variables. But you can't look at just one of them on their own. I mean, I'll give you an example. Let's say that the ability to spend right now is really, really high. And it is. It's probably the best that I've seen in recorded history. That doesn't mean people are going to spend their money, right? Just because you got money in your pocket doesn't mean you want to give it up. So to sit there and just say, okay, our ability to spend right now is really high. So therefore, let's just jump heavy into the markets and the economy and get all bullish could be a very, very dangerous thing to do you got to look at the whole picture. So whether it's manufacturing data or spending data, you got to bring it all together to have a good picture. No data point on its own is sufficient. My favorite, one of these like predictor indicator things has nothing to do with investing. It's in an election year that the winner of the Super Bowl predicts who's going to win the presidential election. You hear that every single year at the Super Bowl when there's a presidential election, right? But I always wonder that when the media jumps on these things, and they sort of pound it into your head, do they help to create the event that they're predicting, you know, by sort of beating into your head? It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Well, look, I'll answer your question by adding another indicator out there that people like to use. That's the stock market. Look, I mean, I don't think the tail wags a dog here, all right? I think that corporate profits drive stock prices over the long run. But to your point, Mike, a lot of times the volatility you're seeing in markets, the tail can end up wagging the dog to a certain degree. Let's say, for example, you're seeing some volatility in the markets. That is going to impact spending, right? If you're seeing your stock and bond portfolios go down, you might not buy that nicer bottle of wine at dinner. Maybe you stay home one night instead of going out to the restaurant. There is some effect, I do think, from those, but I think that they are overall tend to be fleeting and they don't last. You have to have structural issues for that, for that to occur. So one of my favorite quotes, you guys know I like quotes. One of my favorite quotes of all time was from Paul Samuelson. He's a famous economist. He said that Wall Street indexes predicted nine out of the last five recessions. Okay, again, it goes back to what Remy said earlier. Just because you put pants on doesn't mean you're going to get in a car wreck. The market has fallen prior to every recession going back in modern history. But it doesn't imply that every time the market goes down that a recession is imminent. Think about how many false positives we've had just over the last three or four years. Now, yes, we had a recession, but that was self-induced in March of 2020. I'm talking about, go back to December of 2018. I'm sure you guys don't remember it, but I do because I'm a geek about this stuff. The market was down almost 20% going into Christmas Eve. 
Christmas Eve, the market was down 4 or 5%. There was no recession. There was nothing even close to recession. So there are so many of these different pockets that happen along the way that you can't sit there and say that, oh, the market's going down. We got to run for the hills. It just doesn't work that way. And you talk about your favorite uh, indicators. Here's my favorite one is the skyscraper index. Have you guys heard about this? <laughs> I have not. Get ready for this. So there's this theory that anytime the world's tallest building has been built, that it's a predictor of an imminent global recession. So if you think about, go back to the Burj Al Arab, I think that's the name of the building in 2007. All right, they built this thing and we ended up in a recession. So there's something going on right now. There's a new building in Malaysia called Merdeka 118 or something like this. I don't know if you've seen the picture of this building. It's beautiful, but it looks like it could take down an airline jet. It's so big. So the, the idea here is that these buildings only get financed during times of total greed, expansion, euphoria, things of that nature. And because of it, it's a sign that people are overextended, debt's been levered up too high, all of the different you know, bullet points you hear during times of extreme excess. And that when you see these buildings finished, you hit a timer of sorts and a recession's gonna happen within the next couple of months. So right now, that is circling around the media a little bit, the skyscraper index. The thing is, it sounds ridiculous, but I go back and I think about you know myself. I'm a pretty logical guy, but there are times when you just can't help it, right? I'm, I'm a big Pittsburgh Steelers fan, and I remember for a while, you know, the game's going to be on, and it's like, oh, man, I'm going to make this nice, big, huge sandwich, and I'm going to sit down, I'm going to eat a sandwich, I'm, I'm going to sort of enjoy the game. And for like two or three weeks straight, every time I sat down, I ate this gigantic sandwich, they'd lose. So the fourth game, for whatever reason, enough time to make a sandwich and they won. So it sort of goes on and on and on. And I sort of got it in my head, you know what? I can't sit down and eat sandwiches when I watch the Steelers play because they lose every time I'm eating a sandwich, right? I can't enjoy the sandwich and enjoy the game. So I would stop eating. And man, I must've went like a whole season where I'm like, man, I just can't eat before these games because you know, they're going to lose. It's ridiculous. But these things sort of get into your head no matter whether it's something stupid like eating a sandwich or something that has enormous impact like you know, building the world's tallest building. So when it comes to some of these key indicators, you know, especially the ones that tend to be hyped by the media, what's the bottom line? I'd say the bottom line is I've been working in this business for a while. I look at a lot of data. Not once in my single career have I found a trigger switch or a line in the sand. It just doesn't work that way. Now, a lot of times, let's say for a yield curve inversion, a lot of times the drivers of that yield curve inversion are the same drivers that's leading us into a recession. You just got to dig deeper because a lot of times it doesn't. Podcast is created and presented by Darwin Asset Management LLC and Darwin Advisors LLC, collectively referred to as Darwin. Darwin does not make any representation or warranties and therefore takes no responsibility as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information contained in this podcast. Any tax or legal information contained in this podcast is general in nature. Always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. The information presented does not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and there could be no assurance that any investment or strategy will be suitable or profitable for a client's portfolio. All investment strategies have the potential for profit and loss. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Information presented is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities mentioned herein.